go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. You definitely want to have a Bible. Uh, you can also open up your smartphone or tablet uh, to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along in the events. We've been working out some kinks in there and it's all worked out. So that event is there for you to find in the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, and you can, do, you can do that. So Romans chapter 14 is where we are together today. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's just a privilege and honor to serve you in the scriptures. I'm excited to open up God's word with you today. I think everyone has strange ideas about what they think marriage is, especially when they first get married. Um, there's all these expectations. There's all these uh, ideas. That some, some of it's very idealistic. This is going to save my life. This is going to make everything so much better. And then you realize something, that you have entered into this relationship where now you, you and another sinner are trying to create a new family, and it's crazy town, right? And, and so it's, even though it's difficult and it's crazy and you take two very different people and you try to put them into this new relationship and call this a family, it's, it's insane, but it's God's design. It's what God wants. It's what he has called us to do. And, and in that, in all, in all that reality, um, inevitably there's gonna be some sort of what I like to call heated fellowship. You know what I mean when I say heated fellowship? Apparently you do. Heated fellowship. You may have experienced some of this. I remember very early on in my relationship, my, uh, my marriage with my wife, Micah, uh, we had one of these moments of heated fellowship. Uh, and as we were, you know, going through all of this, uh, essentially in my mind, I was right and she was obviously wrong. Um, and there were no other valid options than what I was thinking. And so she just had to, you know, she was just being difficult, and I, essentially what I had to do was argue her into submission, but her stubbornness kept her fighting me. Why are you laughing? <laughs> you think this isn't going to end very well, right? Like, this is a bad, you are thinking very poorly. If you're not married, consider this some pre-marriage counseling for you, okay? Uh, just learn from some of my mistakes. I'll show you where the landmines are that I stepped on. So essentially, my, my loving wife had to tell me that I was only frustrated with her because uh, her opinion and her thought was not my thought. And, and that she was entitled to her own opinion. And, and for some reason, that just didn't cross my mind. I thought my opinion was supposed to be her opinion. And when I told her what my opinion was, it was automatically, magically going to make her opinion what I thought. And it hit me in that moment that I was the ridiculous one, not her. I was the one with weird expectations, not her. You see, the truth is that there are lots of things in life that are these sort of gray areas. It's not black and white. They're just sort of areas of opinion. They're areas where you have a thought, I have a thought, and, you know, maybe we have different thoughts on this, and neither of us are necessarily right or wrong. We just have a different idea uh, about it. And God gives direction for us on ha how to handle these gray areas, these uh, areas where there is no black and white, uh, for both ourselves as well as for others. And that's what we're going to be looking at together today in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Here's our big idea. Navigating gray areas requires a living relationship with the living God. If you want to do this well, 
If you want to go through the gray areas of life and you want to navigate this in a proper way that's going to honor other people, it's going to honor the Lord, it's going to be something that is going to uh, be a benefit for you as well, you are going to need a living relationship with the living God. So that's our, our big idea together. So let's read Romans 14. We'll read all 12 verses together uh, in this section, and then we'll go back through and break it down. So Romans 12, uh, excuse me, Romans 14, 1 says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let, he, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he uh, gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none, none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what your word has to say. God, change us to be more like you. Help us to stop coming to you with all the things that we want you to do and how we want you to buy off on our thing, but instead, show us where you're inviting us into your thing. Show us where we can become more like you. Show us where we can lay aside, as, as Hebrews says, the sin and the weight that so easily ensnares us. Show us where all those things can be removed and we can become more like you. Grow us, mature us, cause us to become uh, more like Jesus. And uh, uh, as we do so, Help us to understand your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today as we look at Romans 14, 1 through 12, we're going to break it down into two sections, two parts. The first is verses 1 through 6, Jesus sets the standard. And then the second part is verses 7 through 12, Jesus is the master. Now Romans uh, 12 through 15 is the section that we're in, right? We've, we've started a, a new section in, when we got to chapter 12. And the whole section of chapter uh, 12 through chapter 15 is all targeting the will of God. It's dealing with very practical Christian living. It's an unveiling of the so what or the what now in, in, uh, in the scriptures. But this section is not in a vacuum. We tend to, when we come to these kinds of sections in the Bible that are imperatives or they tell us what to do or they give us directions, we tend to forget that they come not in a vacuum of, of themselves, but Romans 14 comes after Romans 13 all the way back to the beginning of the book of Romans. So we have an entire uh, um, uh, letter of con context that gives us understanding as to what it is 
we're looking at. You see, we can't look at Romans 14 and what's stated here and the practical, very practical things um, in this last quarter of the book of Romans and forget that we got here by going through the previous 11 chapters all the way uh, through, through the book. You see, here's the conclusion of the book of Romans up to this point. When we look, just look back over the, the, the time we spend in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, the conclusion is essentially this. You deserve God's wrath against your sin. That's the, the black backdrop that's painted in the beginning of the book of Romans. But Jesus took that wrath for you. What an amazing reality. And if you believe this and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for you, you go from being the object of God's wrath to being the object of God's love. You become his beloved. You become adopted into his family. What an amazing thing. And the reality is that that, that adoption isn't just something that is for you, it's something that is through you as well. That God brings you into his family and God says this, if you're my kids, then my, kid, my family looks like, acts like a certain thing. Doesn't your family have some characteristics about it? Doesn't your, your family have uh, some, some things that are distinguishable that when people see you and your family, they immediately know that that's your family. Those are things that are uh, associated with your family. Maybe it's chaos. You know, they're like, oh, there's that family. There's, maybe that's, maybe it's another family, you know. About, or maybe, man, those guys, they are so, they're just high and tight and like there is no movement and you know, uh, I, I don't know what it is, but there are certain characteristics that are with your family. So too, with the family of God, when you're adopted and brought into the family of God, there are characteristics of being in God's family, stuff that should just come out. But we don't start with action. That's religion. When you start with the activity, when you start with the action, that's religion. And all that does is produces frustration and arrogance. That's all religion will get you. It'll get you frustration because you're not able to do the stuff that you think that you're supposed to do or your life doesn't look like their life or the things that are in your life aren't looking the way you think they're supposed to or arrogance where you see yourself as so much better than those filthy other people. You know those dirty people, those nasty people that you don't want to be around and be a part of? You just puff yourself up as arrogantly, I'm so much better than them. That's what religion produces and you get that when you start with action. But before action comes belief. And before belief comes knowledge. Here, here's the way that I like to say it. The right action or the right information produces the right application and that produces the right transformation. If you want the stuff in your life, the actions in your life to be different, you don't start by trying to do what Nike says and just do it. Just try really hard, just but will yourself into being different. Just, just set that New Year's resolution. Anybody still doing their New Year's resolution? Any, anybody there? Yeah, you are, wow, there's one really devoted person in this entire room. We, we, just, we can't will ourselves into change, can we? No, we need something else to happen. So if you want your actions to change, back up. Your beliefs need to change. Here's the truth. Whatever you're doing is a result of what you're believing. You might say you believe something different, but your actions prove your beliefs. And if you want your beliefs to change, you have to go back further. You have to have the right information. And I, I actually briefly explained that to you when I gave you a synopsis of the book of Romans, didn't I? 
Our sin makes us condemned before God. That's the information you need. The belief is Jesus took your condemnation. And if you believe that, it changes who you are and what comes out of your life. This is one of the major keys to understanding how life works. Now, this is not only true in the positive, it's also true in the negative. If you believe the wrong information, you're going to have the wrong action. And that's just the way that it's going to come out. Now, while these principles may have some benefit to a non-believer, those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus, the power to truly change is only found in Jesus. You can't just kind of know these principles and put them into action and see real transformation. No, we need Jesus to do this in us and through, that, through us. And as we're being changed, as we're transformed by the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection impacts your life, sinks into your heart and your mind, and starts to transform you, what happens is your convictions about things, it's going to shift. There's going to be stuff that you're going to be convicted about or stuff that you used to be really convicted about that you're not so convicted about anymore. The things are going to shift in your life. And so that brings us to our first section in Romans 14, verses 1 through 6, that Jesus sets the standard. When we think about our convictions shifting, he's the one that gets to tell us what those are. Look back at verse 1, it says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Now, this entire discussion, this whole section that we're looking at in Romans 14, even what we're going to look at next week as we finish up Romans 14, is all centered around these two words at the end of verse 1, doubtful things. If, if you don't grasp doubtful things, then you can make this section say a lot of stuff that it doesn't actually say. Doubtful things is what we're targeting. And so what, what does that mean? What are, we, what are we talking about in terms of the, the idea of the phrase doubtful things? Well, these are issues in life that don't have a verse, right? You can't look up a verse for this, and you, you don't have a clear biblical principle that you can go to to apply. There's just... There's just some gray area in this. It's not, very, it's not black and white. It's very gray. There's nothing in it that is, is essentially established through Scripture. And there's lots of things in life that are not directly addressed by the Bible. Let me give you a couple. Um, should you go to the movies? You're like, well, kind of maybe. What kind of movie is it? <laughs> it really depends, doesn't it? It depends on, you know, it depends on what era you grew up in. I mean, if you go back, I don't know, 60 years or so, it was evil to listen to the radio. Um, and so you just, it really just depends on what you're talking about, what the, what the stuff is that's going on with that. What about this? Here's one that's really relevant. What about Halloween costumes? Should, should you wear them? Should you not wear them? Some of you are like getting ready to stand up and go, no, they're evil. And others of you are like, but what if I wear a hot dog costume? And you're like, like what do, what, what's right? What's wrong? What's appropriate? Here, here's one that's sure to divide the room. Apple or Android? If you're saved, you're going to go with Apple. <laughs> if you like headaches, go ahead and buy Android. <laughs> now half you hate me. <laughs> right? It's so easy to pick some of these things. And our natural tendency is to create camps, isn't it? I'm for this, I'm against that. 
I, I do this, I don't do that. And we figure out when we create our camps, who's in my camp, who's not in my camp, who's an insider, who's an outsider. And in this, I, not only do I do that, but then the outsiders become the enemy. They're the ones I attack. They're the ones I go after. I dispute and I divide. In short, we go to war. That's what our tendency is to do. And most of these things that we go to war over are not spiritual issues. They're not spiritual issues. But here's the issue. The way we handle the issues is spiritual. Here's how Jesus, or excuse me, it says it in Ephesians 6, verse 12. It says this, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The, the battle you're fighting isn't that person. That's not what it is. It is a spiritual war that you find yourself in. You are in a spiritual battle. And one of the greatest tactics of our real enemy, Satan and the, the minions of demons that are under his sway and under his control, one of the greatest tactics of our enemy is to get us to think that we're the enemy. To get us to fight each other. Especially over non-essential issues. We divide, we devour, we get crazy about stuff that really doesn't matter. Especially when it comes to gray area issues. Now, to be very, very clear, doubtful things is not stuff that's essential to Christianity. We're not talking about that stuff. So when we say doubtful things, we're not talking about things that the Bible alone is God's word. The Book of Mormon doesn't count as God's word. Um, the, the translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I can't remember what the New World Translation, that's not God's word. Uh, that, that we're talking about the Bible alone is God's word. That Jesus is God. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for my sin and is alive today. That those are some of the essentials of Christianity. When we're talking about the gray areas of life, we're not talking about those. Those are hills that we'll die on. Those are ways that we will divide. Those are ways that we say you are not in Christ. You are not in the family of God if you are not in those things. And so we're not talking about that. What we were talking about is other stuff within, within Christianity, like maybe st stuff like this. Should we worship God on Saturday or Sunday or Thursday? You know, I just saw, yeah, all, all of the above. Like we, we I just saw a, uh, uh, what is it, a paid advertisement from a church that uh, said, hey, we're going to do church on Thursdays. And uh, I, their whole pitch was, don't sacrifice your weekend. I'm like, oh, that's kind of, kind of the wrong motive. <laughs> but whatever, bro. I hope people come. Um, if you, as long as you tell them about Jesus, I hope they come. Um, you know, like, so who cares? I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say you got to worship God on Sunday or you're just, you're not really worshiping God. Why? Why, do we, why would we divide over those things? Or maybe music. Should we use an organ? There's actually an organ right there. Should we use the organ? Should it be? Yeah. Does anybody know how to play that? I have no, I have no idea. I could probably make it sound scary. Um, but should we only sing a cappella because musical instruments are evil? Should we use drums and guitars? Where do we do this? It's gray area kinds of stuff. Or dress. Should you wear a suit when you go to church? Uh, should you, is it okay to wear jeans like I'm wearing? Is it okay to wear shorts or basketball shoes? Like what, what is it okay to wear? What's not okay to wear? All of these issues are issues of personal preference and personal conviction. 
None of them make you more or less holy. None of them make you more or less accepted to God. But here's the thing. We tend to say, here's my preference. And if you don't get on board with what I think is great, then you're, you're just really not as awesome as I am. God doesn't really like you as much as he likes me. We tend to divide over these gray area issues. The responsibility here we see in Romans 14 is given to the mature believers. Notice it says there, receive one who is weak in the faith. This is obviously targeting and being given to and uh, uh, addressing those who are the more mature believers. They are to receive the one who is weak. And that means to make room for them, to not allow division within the church. And there are two things that we are given here in this section, this first piece, that are the doubtful things that were a big source of contention in the Roman church. Now again, these doubtful things are these areas where there is no clear scripture. You don't have a verse for it, right? There are lots of things that are not doubtful. We've got verses for them, okay? But this is not stuff that, is, uh, that you got a verse for or a clear biblical principle. Now, what is shocking in these examples, before we jump into them, just one, one last thought before we jump into these things. What's shocking in these examples is who's strong and who's weak. This is what shocks me. Like when I read this, I expect it to say the opposite, but who is strong and who is weak is what is shocking to me. Now, last week in Romans chapter 13, at the end there in verses 8 through 14, the whole idea of last week was this, that self-denial is one of the greatest means and keys to spiritual maturity. But here's the deal. There's more to maturity than just this self-denial. Because as we look in Romans 14, here's what the basic concept is. The whole idea is that self-denial is a sign of spiritual weakness. So which one is it? Is self-denial spiritual maturity or is self-denial spiritual weakness? Yes is the right answer. It's both. It's both. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. Both are simultaneously true, even though it's an opposing idea. The Bible has many God-designed tensions in it. And we don't seek to alleviate those tensions. We lean into them because that's how God matures us. There are lots of tensions in the scriptures. You're going to find them all over the place. Like, here's one. Does God choose people to get saved or do you choose to get saved? Yes. Yes is the right answer. It's both. And as soon as you pick one and you start to go, well, it's actually this one, now you're trying to alleviate a tension that God didn't design to be alleviated. You're trying to remove, God's using that tension to grow you and to mature you. Is self-denial maturity or is it weakness? God's using that tension in between because both are simultaneously true to get you to grow. The tension is what causes you to grow. Now the first one we see is in verse 2. It says this, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So apparently vegetarians are unbiblical. (laughs) It's obviously not what that's saying, right? It's obviously not what's going on. The issue really has nothing to do with meat and not meat. The issue has nothing to do with whether you're eating it or not. The idea is about self-denial that produces holiness. In this time, when this was written, uh, meat was most commonly, most readily accessible, most easily purchased 
through a meat market that was associated with a, an idol, uh, a t- temple worship for, for some idol. So you would go down to, you know, the meat market, which was outside of this, um, you know, temple of a false god, and they would sacrifice animals to this false god, and then they would, you know, have brisket on sale uh, afterward, and you're like, I'll take one of those, and maybe a tri-tip as well. And uh, people are like, I can't eat that. It was sacrificed to an idol. What are you doing? Right? So they're freaking out. Some people are like, I don't know, man. The idol isn't real. I'm just going to barbecue. This is great. Uh, it's discount meat, and so I'm, I'm in, you know? And so there's people that are in this, this position of having an issue about this. And what we tend to do is categorize into better or worse or even say good and bad where God looks at it as mature and immature or strong and weak. And so what it says here is there's the one who eats the meat and they, their conscience has no problem with it because they realize there's no such thing as an idol and they can say, Thanks for this nice piece of meat, God. And they eat it with no issue where the weak one says, I can't do that because it's violating my relationship with God to eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol. You see, see where the division is being caused? You see where now self-denial isn't a strength, now it's a weakness? You see where it's this self-imposed denial that is set up not to honor God, but to puff myself up and to say, show how holy I am as this outward declaration of my, my greatness. Notice verse three, it says this, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own mastery stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You see, the stronger believer has the responsibility to set the tone and the example within the church by doing three things. That's what these two verses tell us. Three things to do. Number one, receiving the weaker person. Don't despise them. Just because you can eat meat and you have no issue with your conscience, you don't look down on them and say, you foolish weakling. Right? You don't despise them and say, you're so terrible. What is wrong with you? You're on this Daniel diet, only eating vegetables. That's ridiculous. You know, you don't, no, you don't do that. The stronger one will not look down on the weaker one. They won't despise them. Secondly, They won't allow the weaker one to judge them. You ever had somebody who's weaker in the faith judge you because of the freedom you have in Christ? They look at you and they say, you're so so just frivolous with your life and I can't believe you would do that. And oh my goodness, this, this idol is so evil and you're just eating that spare rib, you know, and you're like, well, it's good. Would you like some? I I got this great barbecue sauce and I think you're gonna like it. The stronger believer is not to allow the weaker believer to judge them. And thirdly, the stronger believer also refuses the place of the judge. See that there in verse four? Because they are another's servant. They aren't yours, right? Because you're stronger, it doesn't mean that you're in the position of authority over them. No, that's not your place. That's the place that belongs to Jesus. They are, the, they are uh, the, under the authority of Jesus, not you. And so, these are the, the three things that the stronger believer does. David Guzik says it like this. But Paul says that we should receive one who is weak in the faith. Not that we hope that they stay there. We want you and I and all of us to get stronger and stronger in our walk with God. Receiving someone who is weaker in the faith isn't saying, I'm just going to make room for your weakness and just say that it's okay. No. 
It's to say, I'm going to receive you. It's the idea of being long-suffering with somebody, to say, I'll receive you in the hopes that you grow, in the hopes that you mature, in the hopes that you develop, not that you just, you just are, well, I'm just weak, and so that's just the way it is. You just got to deal with it. Deal with my weakness because I'm not going to change. That's not Christianity. That's not, that's not what God does. Jesus moves into your life to change everything. He, he comes into your life like an apartment and he doesn't like the way you have the furniture arranged. So he wants to rearrange it. And he doesn't like the pictures you have on the wall. So he wants to take some of them down and he wants to put some other ones up. And he wants to make sure that all that stuff is, is taken care of. And that closet that you have in the back that's locked and the lights are off and it's dark and you don't want anybody to go in there. Jesus wants to go in there. And he wants to rearrange some things. He wants to get rid of some things. And we've got to give him access to everything. We don't hold him out and say, you know what? Just got to take me as I am because that's the way that it is. Yes, Jesus is so good and so loving and so kind. He'll receive you just as you are. You don't have to change anything to get Jesus to, to accept you. But he loves you far too much to leave you that way. He's not going to let you stay the same. He's going to change you. He's going to challenge you. He's going to grow you and mature you. And so that's what we're seeking for. The second issue that we see isn't just about the idea of a special diet, but it's about special days as well. In verse 5, it says this, One person esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. So they're having these problems, these two different things happening within the Roman church. One is about special diets. Are you going to eat or not eat? And the other one's about special days. Are you going to observe the day or not observe the day? And this is most clearly seen within the Jewish believers in the Roman church because they would really lift up and exalt the Old Testament holidays, the Old Testament holy days, which is where we actually get the term holiday. So when you, it's funny because uh, it's been a, a couple of years now. Well, it's coming around. Uh, the whole don't say Merry Christmas thing, but you have to say Happy Holidays. It's like, where do you think holiday comes from? It's holy day. Like you're saying the same, th whatever. Um, so I just say Merry Christmas because it make, makes people crazy. Um, so... Because I'm going to, Christ, Jesus, I'm going to put Jesus into that. So anyway, it's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. But the whole point is that there are some people who exalt days as really holy days. And other people, like we said before, do you worship God on Saturday or Sunday or Thursday? Other people are like, yeah, all of the above. Every day is equally holy. There aren't certain days that are more holy than the others. You know, ministry, it's kind of like a first responder in terms of the, the schedule. You know, cops and uh, the hospital and the ambulance, they don't, you know, you call, you call the ambulance, they don't say, oh, you know what? It's my birthday today. I can't come get you. I'm sorry. It's, it's Easter and my family's coming over and I know you just chopped your arm off, but you're just going to have to drive yourself to the hospital. Right? They don't do that. They don't do that. They don't ha there are no sacred days. The same is very true in, in ministry. As a ministry family, there are no sacred days. Things fall on all of those sacred days all of the time. You know what I'm going to be doing on Easter Sunday? Preaching. That's what I'm going to be doing because that's what God has called me to do. And, and as we give our time and our effort as a ministry family to the things of the Lord, 
things interrupt our schedule all the time. And so there are no sacred days. But do we celebrate those days? Absolutely. Usually what we try to do, especially, you know, when things fall on those special days for our kids, we try to celebrate them early so they feel like they're getting something better. Not saying, oh, sorry, it, it wrecked your birthday celebration, so wait a month and we'll figure it out later. We, we try not to do that. <clears throat> but for some people, there are sacred days. Other people, there are no sacred days. You see, the focus on both of these issues, on food, on special diets and special days, is about doubtful things in the church in Rome. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's about giving people the freedom to make their own decisions and receiving them. That's the point. The whole point is giving people the freedom to make their decisions and receiving them anyway. Here's a really great example of what's happening right now culturally in our world. Do you wear masks or do you not wear masks with all this COVID going on? Well, we, the stance we've decided to take as a church is to just give people the freedom to do what they want and receive them regardless. We're not gonna tell people what to do. We're not gonna say, if you wear a mask, you're more holy. We're not gonna say, if you don't wear a mask, you're more holy. We're not gonna draw that line. We're gonna say, listen, here's the reality. You, you're adults. You can make the decision for yourself and you decide what you would like to do. You decide what you're comfortable doing. And, and so as we've done this, your personal holiness isn't tied to what you're gonna do with a mask or not a mask. You are free to decide because this is the idea of gray areas. I have no verse in the Bible that says, if you wear a mask, you're more holy. I have no verse that says, if you don't wear a mask, you're more holy. There isn't one. There's no biblical principle that, that can tie to this. So what do we do? We give people the, the opportunity for personal, uh, personal decision on all of this because Jesus is the one who sets the example. But also, secondly, verses seven through 12, Jesus, he's the master. Look at verse seven. It says this, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Now that the concept has been established here in this opening section in Romans 14, the idea that, that, uh, that, that there are these gray areas and, and what should we do with it, the major biblical principle has got to be brought to the front. How, like, how do we actually do this in the church? How does this practically work out within the church? Well, the place we have to start from is that no one even belongs to themselves. That, that you don't belong to you. You're not yours. You're, you're, not, you're not the one who gets charge over your own life. Why? Because you've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. You've been made by God. He's de designed you. He's the, scripture tells us that he knits you together or fashions and forms you together in your mother's womb. He creates you and then... Then beyond that, he purchases you with his own blood. That you are doubly belonging to God because of this. And, and in that reality, you don't belong to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says it like this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. That, that you... You don't belong to you because you were bought with a high price. You know what the high price is? The precious, spotless, sinless blood of Jesus. 
His blood was spilled to purchase you. There is no greater purchase price than the blood of God himself who put on human flesh to buy you with his sacrifice. You see, Jesus in this doesn't wait until your death to take possession of his purchase price. Look at, look at there, verse seven. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Look at verse eight. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You belong to him in life and in death. There's nothing that separates you from the love of God. Believers belong to him in both life and death. And when you recognize that you belong to Jesus, you're left with no recourse but to submit to him as Lord. See how it says it there at the end of verse eight? We are the Lord's. You, you belong to him. There's no recourse for your life except submission to him to say, I belong to you. You are, you are the one who is in position of authority over my life. Now this, this drives religious people crazy. You know why? Because they want control. Religious people want control. They don't want to give control to Jesus. They want to take control. And so because they want to take control, they want to set the rules. They want to say what's right and what's wrong. And if you don't agree with their standards and all these gray areas, and we say this and we say that, and you've got to do it this way, you've got to dress this way, you've got to sing in this fashion, you've got to organize things in this particular thing, you've got to go to these places, you have to give to these kinds of charities. And if you don't do all those things, then you're not holy. That's what religious people do. They set all the standards. And not only do they set all the standards, but they give themselves loopholes. There's a, well, you know, I don't have to do it because, and uh, you have to, I got, I have black and white for you and I have gray for me. That's what religious people do. That's how religious people think because they want control. They heap condemnation on you while giving themselves loopholes. So, so just two cautions on this. Don't seek that place in other people's lives. You're not Lord. That's not your position. It's not your place to dictate to other people what they do or don't do, unless they're your children, right? You should do that. Don't let them do whatever they want. They're sinners. <laughs> but don't try to control other people. Don't try to do it. And also, secondly, don't let other people do that to you. Don't let people religiously control you. They're gonna try. And the ones who try to religiously control you, they're the weaker ones. They're not mature. Those who are immature in their faith in Jesus seek to control others. But those who are mature give room. They receive them and give them room. And they let God transform those people. They give God the opportunity to do the work that only he can do. Verse nine, I love this verse. Oh, I've turned too many pages. It says this, for to this end Christ died and rose and lives, lived again that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living. Notice that word there in verse nine, four. This is the entire point of Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection. The whole point is emphasized in this fact that he is Lord. Jesus is the Lord. You're not the Lord. That other person isn't the Lord. Jesus alone takes this position of lordship and he did not die a murderous, torturous, sacrificial death to give you lordship. That's craziness. His death was to purchase you for himself as his beloved purchase possession. 
Jesus didn't die to make you Lord or to make that other person Lord. Now, this word Lord there at the, uh, in verse 9, uh, it should be capitalized in your Bible because it's not just talking about the idea of a, uh, you know, like a, uh, a title of like maybe a king or something like that or, you know, when you think about those kind of monarchies. It's not that. It's actually speaking to the idea of God. It's a title for God and for God alone. Now, here's what's crazy. Here's what's interesting. Notice the connection between the word Lord and Christ. Christ is Lord. Do you see that there? So, so the, the idea of Christ being Lord is a very clear, very direct verse pointing to the deity of Jesus. This is clearly proclaiming and exclaiming to us that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, he alone deserves this place of exaltation to be the dictator over all of human life and human affairs. That no person can handle that kind of pressure, that only Jesus is able to do such a thing. You see, the issue of all of this goes back to what we pointed out in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And if you weren't with us during that, uh, during that study, I'd encourage you, you can check it out online or on our podcast. Uh, it's a, a great Great section to, to go through Romans 12, 1 and 2. But one of the, the, the big conclusion that we got to in that section was this. Love God and do whatever you want. That drives some people crazy. They're like, wait, wait, wait. You can't say do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, read the first part though. Love God and do whatever you want. If you disconnect it from love God then, and you jump right to the do whatever you want, then you're gonna try to use that to open up the door to all sorts of sinful nonsense. But if you are truly honoring and loving God, then God is going to put his desires within you and you're going to want what he wants. Loving God is the starting point. You see, if Jesus is your Lord, then here's the truth. He will direct your path. Isn't that true? He's, go he's actually going to change the course. Have you, ex have you ever experienced that? You were set on a decision. You were going to go a direction. You were doing a thing. You had your plans all established. You're going to make it all happen. And you start to go down that path. And then the Lord does something either in your heart or in your mind. And he changes the entire course. I just had a conversation this morning with somebody as they were coming in saying, I didn't want to go to this place. And uh, I, I was set on not doing it. And I woke up the next morning. And I was like, oh, I should go. The Lord changes the course of your life. The, he just, if you have a living relationship with the living God, he's going to actively be transforming things in your life down to the minute decisions and details of, of what you do in your day-to-day -day life. You've got to trust him to do that, not only in you, but also in them. He's the Lord, not you. He can do that. He can, he can make that happen. Look at verse 10. It says this, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. By exalting yourself as judge, you are usurping the authority that belongs to Jesus alone. You're, you're actually seeking to dethrone Jesus. I'm just going to throw this out there. That's a bad idea. Probably not what you want to do. You don't want to go to war against God. You're, you're going to lose, right? This type of judgment we see there in verse 10 
is the ability where it says there, why do you judge your brother? This is to say this, that you have this ability to look into the heart and mind of another person and determine their motives. Can you do that? You have no ability to do that. And yet, it's something that we constantly think that we're able to do. Oh, I know why they did this. Oh, I know why they said that. Oh, I know why they were making that decision. You don't know that. You have no idea. There are only two people who know. They know what their motive is, and Jesus knows what their motive is. That's it. Nobody else knows. And, and it may look to you as though you know, but, but you don't know. Now, there's another judgment that's going on here. Notice it says there, why do you judge your brother? And it says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's another kind of judgment that's being established here. So he's saying, don't judge other people because you can't look into their hearts and minds. And yet, someone can, his name's Jesus, and we're all going to stand before him. And this idea of the judgment seat is the Greek word of the bema seat of Christ. This, is, this comes from uh, the Olympics. And you know there's that uh, tiered stage thing that you stand on if you win. Well, maybe not you. They win. Maybe you went to the Olympics. I don't know. Um, but there's that you know, three-tiered thing where you get the bronze, the silver, and the gold medal. It's that step. That's what the, the bema literally means, step. So it's that place that you would stand on the step and then the judges would declare to you that you are the winner and they would give to you a reward. That's the idea. So this judgment has nothing to do with your sin. It has nothing to do with, am I in heaven? Am I not in heaven? It's not that. We're past that. The blood of Jesus has purchased your ticket into heaven. Now you're there. Now you're standing in front of God and Jesus looks at your life and he says, well done good and faithful servant. Man, I want to hear those words. Can you imagine Jesus looking right at your eyes and saying that to you? And he gives you rewards. This is that moment. Because there are things in our lives that Jesus will reward us for, and you know what they're tied to? Much less the stuff we do, much more the motive as to why we do it. Can you do the right thing in the wrong way? Absolutely. Do you think doing the right thing in the wrong way with the wrong motive does anything before God? Absolutely not. It might look great in front of people. It might look awesome in front of them, but it's a show, right? God sees the heart of what's really going on. He alone knows what's happening. And so we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. It's this, this reward seat. It's only for believers. Non-believers don't qualify for this. They're not even gonna get to this judgment. All right, verses 11 and 12. Here in verse 11, we see that Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23, that all people from all places through all of time will all do two things. Doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. They're going to bow to his lordship. Every knee will bow and they will confess to his lordship. They will bow before him as Lord and God and they will say, you are Lord and God. That every people in all place for all of time will do this. The, the idea, the certain reality of this is unavoidable. You don't have a choice as to whether or not you're gonna do this. You absolutely will do this. The only choice you have is when. Will you do it now or will you do it then? Will you do it on this side of your death or will you do it on that side of your death. If you choose to wait until then, 
then the judgment you will receive is the condemnation for your sin. You will bow before Jesus, you will confess his lordship, and you will be sentenced to an eternity of condemnation. But if you choose today to confess Jesus as Lord, to bow your knee to him, to submit to him, then the only judgment that you have to look forward to is not a condemnation, it shifts away from condemnation and shifts toward reward. What an amazing exchange that God extends to us. See, God's given many things into your hand that you're responsible to him for. Verse 12 says, we will give an account to God. You will give an account to God for yourself. You see, God's given things into your hands and you're responsible to him for what you do and what you don't do. You're not responsible for what they have, right? God's given them something else. You're not responsible for them. Here's how John Corson says it. He says, of whom will you give account? Yourself. That's all. You don't have to give an account for the person in front of you or behind you. Every one of us will give account of ourselves. There is a day coming. There is a time coming where you will stand alone before Jesus. I won't be able to be there with you. Your friends won't be able to be with you, there with you. Your family won't be able to be there with you. You alone will stand in front of God. That he will judge your life. And when your focus is on using your life to the greatest degree possible to honor him, then you have no time left to judge other people, do you? I'm so worried about trying to just do my best with what God's given me. I, I can't worry about you and what you're doing and not doing. I've got to worry about me and what, if I'm doing what God's called me to do. So here's the, here's the truth. Here's the reality. Trying to get a changed life apart from the transformation that God's grace alone can give. You're trying to change your life, transform your life. It's foolish and it's offensive. It's foolish because it's impossible to do on your own. You can't change you. There, you don't have enough strength. You don't have enough power. You don't have, you don't have enough will within you. And it's offensive because Jesus gave his life in torturous death in order to purchase transformation for you. You see, it's not only true of you, it's also true of them. Because Jesus paid the price, he gets to set the standard. He gets to be the master. Not you and not them. So here's the question I want to ask. Are you willing to yield control to Jesus? Will you give him control? Will you trust him with your life? Will you allow him that place of lordship to be God, to be Lord? And if you will, you'll see that you can trust him not only with your life, but you can trust him with their life as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word together. We pray that you would be glorified, you would be honored in us. God, help us to be a people who yield to you, who submit to you, who give ourselves over to you, and that you would take the rightful place that only you deserve as Lord, as God, as Savior. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.